Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. America. Welcome to Bricktown. Now, Dr. Bob, we've been talking for a few weeks now. Remind the listeners why the beginning of your book is called From Bricktown. Well, Bricktown was a community that that was all brick brick duplexes. So each side had a family in it. Actually, had two families on each side. Four families lived in each unit, and it was an area of about oh, I say about ten or fifteen blocks of just brick buildings, all family units. And in our case, it was growing up. It was an all black neighborhood. I'm not sure when it became that, but it was when I was, and that was when I grew up, and that was in 1945-50. I was cognizant of that, I guess, about 52 or so. And so it's been a long time ago, and it's still there. We went and visited it a couple of years ago. It's kind of a dangerous place now. It's not doing too well. But it was it was home, and we did it. And we could walk to, uh, to school, which was PS116. And which is my the elementary school I went to, and uh, I only remember one of the teachers, Mrs. Hedges, and she was kind of mean, but she was my my teach my sister's teachers also. So it was a, a very eclectic neighborhood, and uh, it was it was home. A lot of people came out of that. Mary Wright Edelman and some other people were from there, and I occasionally I run into people from Bricktown who I did not know. But all of them were pretty, were pretty successful. So there was a lot of strivers and upward movers. So it was, it was, uh, it was very, in fact, there was no crime that I knew of at all growing up. There was no crime. Uh, crime was something that, it, you know, just alien to everything that was going on. So it was a, a good beginning, a good nurturing place for me. I don't remember very many of my friends, but we had, we had friends and we did stuff. And I stayed there till I was about 11. From the time I was born to I was about 11. Then we moved to St. Albans, which was a, a blockbuster kind of place that was a wonderful upward, uh, upwardly mobile neighborhood that was transitioning from all white to all black. And uh, blockbusters, I did that. And it was, we lived in a, a, a pink stucco house with uh, two, two chairs that were hedges, made out of hedges in front. And I lived there until I got out of college. And uh, it also was, we didn't have any crime there either. You could go anywhere, blocks and blocks, and there was no gang stuff or anything like that. So it was, it was a simple time. It was most, almost like uh, Donna Reed's time, a Donna Reed movie that you saw. So I guess, you know, I'm looking at, looking back on it, my boyhood and my childhood was just idyllic. It was wonderful, actually. I never thought of it that way, but it was. Very similar to yours, actually, Rudy. Okay. So, From Breakdown is the beginning of the book. Tell us about the middle and the end of your book. Well, the end hasn't gotten there yet. I'm still kicking at 75, so 
have no idea when, when the end's going to come, but it hasn't come yet, and I'm still doing pretty well. <clears throat> I've had some health issues about a year ago, and I've got, I've seemed to have recovered from all of that. And so, as and given the fact that I have two older sisters who are in their 80s, like hopefully I can meet that stage also. Uh, but I guess I can say that uh, I've watched those. I've watched myself go through life making at least three fortunes and losing three fortunes. So two of them anyway. What I have now is actually pretty good. So I have, I've lived a kind of a charmed life. Uh, and given that, you know, I'm, I, I'm pretty blessed. Praise God. Yeah. What's on your heart to talk about today to America? Well, I guess I want to talk about, you know, probably Neil Satterwhite. Who's been, who's been a friend of mine for over 30 years. I talked to him, I guess, uh, two nights ago, actually. And uh, <clears throat> we could not come from more dissimilar backgrounds, but we've always kind of stuck together for that time. He's helped me in many occasions. He's helped, he's helped me as we built our RV park this last 10 years. He's a carpenter, a nurse. He's a disabled vet like I am. And he's been an inspiration. His two boys grew up with, you know, my two boys. Uh, he's uh, done a lot of stuff. I remember when his, he had his second boy, he was actually in army, in army training somewhere, and I had to take his wife to the hospital so she, so Pat could be born. And that was a week after you were born, Rudy. So you two guys have always been together and. Uh, all the time that you guys have been alive. Same thing with uh, Bobby, my, one of my older sons, and uh, little Neil. And little Neil is six foot seven, so that's relative. So, so as you talk about these friendships that you developed, how did y'all meet? How did you develop this friendship? Well, it's very strange that one because somehow uh, your mother, Diane, met. Daisy. I'm not sure where they met or how they met or whatever. I think it was a child thing at some point where they were going somewhere and the children were together. And so somehow Neil got, got brought into that. And the bottom line of that is we, uh, we've been friends ever since for your entire life, literally. So I guess, I guess, I guess you, could, you were the one who, who caused it to happen because you were the baby man. Of course, the, them, them to be together for that. And I talked to Daisy and Neil, as I said, just a couple of days ago. And we've literally traveled everywhere. We we went to England for two weeks, which was an interesting experience. See one of our, see, see my daughter and her kids. And it was uh, historic for me because I'm something of an amateur historian, but I never realized how small England is, the United Kingdom is, all three of those places. I read about it all my life, and you assume it's a really big place. But all of England would fit inside of North Carolina, all of it, and have room to spare. From, from Murphy to Manio in North Carolina, it's a thousand miles. England's nowhere near that. I don't think it's 500 miles, in fact. 
driving on the other side of the road was interesting. The food is different. It's all fresh. So it was a good experience for us. I me mean, as an older guy going there, and I'd read so much about it. And, uh, I, I've still been reading about Hepburn and Mary Queen of Scots. And right across from where we were staying at, actually, was the staircase that Mary Queen of Scots walked up to get her head chopped off. And me and Neil was meant to always go go to the space where it was at. It was not in a hotel. It was next to us, and we always meant to do it. But something would always come up where we never could finish that. We couldn't get it done. And I don't know why, but it, it just wasn't meant to be. But anyway, it was. Uh, we've we've had a lot a lot of experiences like that. I took Neil and Daisy up to uh, my my wife's farm in Minnesota, and that was an experience for them because it's. It's it's a hundred miles north of Minneapolis, <coughs> and it it's in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And she has a hundred acre farm up there, so we were sitting out there and in back porch barbecuing and stuff. And some of the local neighbors came by to take some of our real southern barbecue, and they loved it. And we had we had bought a, bought a bunch of it, and it all was gone in a couple of hours. And we still have a son up there that lives up there on the farm, and actually two of them that live on the farm up that, up that way. One visits from Minneapolis, the other one lives there. So it was it was a different experience for them. So I, I can honestly say that you know you know friendships are come and go usually, but very few of them last as long as the one with Morell or the one with Neil. But they're two wonderful persons, and they've helped me when I had my down periods and. Like any anybody, I've you've had I've had down periods where things just weren't going well, and so I was going through periods of boom and bust. So that was interesting. So, what do friends do to kind of help you in those down times? Everything and anything. If they had something, they shared it. I had something I shared. Uh, you can hear, hear another opinion and you listen to it. Because your opinion isn't always the best one. It's just one of one of many. And if you trust what they say, it helps you. Morell helped us help the town of Carver raise over $100 million from the federal government. If we had not met him, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, the town would not be nowhere, would not look like it looks now have a premier bus system, a premier park system. None of that would have happened without Morel Fouché. At one point, uh, we had, because we went through city managers fairly for about every three years or so. And some of them, like Richard Knight, were outstanding city managers. He wanted to be city manager at, at uh, Dallas, Texas. That's how good he was. And we gave his first city manager job. And it was during the time when black public administration Edge, you know, guys couldn't get to be city managers. They always got to be assistant city managers. And so they did all the work and got none of the credit and none of the money. But he became a city manager. Now I think he's working with an oil company in Dallas. But all of these people, you know, we tried to help and they helped us. And there was a, t- a tight-knit group of, of friends and stuff that, and, and Carver's case, brought millions of dollars of stuff in because of Morell's expertise his ability to understand what things how to, how to negotiate the federal government 
I was in the White House with him a number of times during Jimmy Carter's time. And he helped negotiate all of that. And it was, it was, very, that was a very good time, a different time. You don't have a situation like you have in the government now, where half the government doesn't have anybody running. You have acting people because this idiot Trump says he, he can fire them faster. They do what he said, so he fires them. So, but but you have nobody running the running the agencies except his cronies, and they're stealing stealing money as fast as it's coming in. This is during a time if he gets reelected, and we're, we're doing this podcast as before the election, about a, about three months before the election, we're in a bad way as a country, and probably going down here permanently. I don't think he's going to get reelected. I think he's going to lose badly. In fact, as a person who's been in politics. My prediction at this point in time, it'll be historic landslide the other way. He's going to lose extremely badly. I mean, we're going at the beginning of, of the Black Lives Movement now, which has swept the country. And all I can say is it's, it's been a wonderful experience watching it. And having been in some of these marches myself, uh, it's just a, a refreshing kind of thing. When I was the mayor of Carver, I remember Carver was a 85% white town and we had a lot of college students who elected me and we just did anything that was different revolutionary things we weren't we weren't constrained by what you could not do we were constrained by what we could do and we tried to do stuff and that's why the, the Chapel Hill has, has the best college University of North Carolina has the best college bus system in the country right now because of me and how we did it in Carver we forced them to do that because that bus system was not viable without the students who lived in Carver. It had to have, have those students to this day. Of course, people don't recognize that and they're near it or whatever. We, but we, you name it, we did it. Uh, from the huge park out, out back that's out there, it's about 100 acres with a, with a lake and everything in it, which we got the Corps of Engineers to actually build. And, you know, we did all, all innovative kind of stuff. And it was just a wonderful time. And it's one of the highlights of my life. But it was it was a, it was a trying time. I'll tell you what's that. The history, when I was mayor. What's the history behind Carmel Mall? Well, Carmel Mall was uh, during World War II was an underwear factory. So it's a big building, big 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 building. I remember going in before it was renovated, and it was cold inside. It was hot outside. It was like eighty degrees inside that building. The walls were thick. Brick walls were so thick. It was sixty degrees inside. And uh, they developed it. The there was there was bricked up windows all over this huge structure. And they took the bricks out first and sold them to Disney World. So when you're walking along the the walkways in Disney World, the brickways they came from Carver. And uh, we, the Carmel Mill was well, Carmel Mall was then built out of that. We had a lot of hands. What we let them do and not do. The city has a lot of power to do stuff. And they brought in Harris Teeter and some other things. And they really made it a very different fl- flavor. Carver is now a very chic place like the Greenwich Village once was before it was, you know, messed over. And uh, when I go there, I'm very proud to go there. It had something to do with it. The current mayor is a wonderful lady and she's done a wonderful job. I went to a, a ceremony about a year ago with all of the living former mayors. And uh, it was a, it was a good, a good event. 
But the interesting thing is all of the, the things that Carver has, I did almost 40 years ago. From the bus system to uh, you name it, we did it. The new fire station, which I got a plaque with my name three times five everybody else's, which I didn't do. Uh, that's what they decided they wanted to put up there that way. So it's been, it was a wonderful place to be and still is a, it's an even better place now. It's one of the unique places that, you know, Carver is in this whole country. Even though I hear them doing stuff like they have Wi-Fi for the whole, the whole city. I don't know if it's free or whatever it is, but the whole city has Wi-Fi that the city operates. They, they do innovative stuff, but they don't do any harmful to people. And it's a, it's, a, it's a city that really welcomes everybody, whatever you want. It was a wonderful place that you and your brother grew up in. Yeah, I had a great childhood there. I had a good experience. Yeah. It, it wasn't, it, it was, there was no, I won't say there was no, but it was almost no crime in there. So people did not get hit in the head or anything. And kids had an opportunity to go to be kids. I was never afraid of, of somebody coming in and hitting somebody in the head or whatever. It was always a, you know, a very, very safe place. The whole time I was in Carborough. And I got, you know, you got one PhD out of that and Another one's walking through the hallways here, playing, playing with our little dog. I'm looking at him now. Well, you know, um, well, this is Bob Drakeford. Bob Drakeford. Hello, Rudy. How you doing? Talk to America. We're on the show from Bricktown. We're talking about Bob Drakeford and his history. What are your thoughts on your dad? Well, I'm lucky to have the privilege and the opportunity to speak with y'all today. My father's a great man. He's a good, patient man. He's highly intelligent. And he instilled in us the skills to succeed in life. And I'll always thank him for that. And it's been a positive influence on a lot of people for a lot of years. So that's, that's what I'm going to say to you, little, little brother. But here, here's his father again. Well, you got a visit from uh, future Dr. Robert Drakeford, and uh, he's going on his, getting his doctorate now. And he was, he was noted and well, well renowned and well respected special ed teacher. And he's got unique skills. And parents would tell me about the things he did for their kids that I know of. I know one wild child that was, I won't say who she was, but I knew her as a kid. And he got, got her as it was one of her well, special ed teachers for her. She went and got a college degree less than, less than a year ago, in fact. And it's not even the same person. And he was the one who changed her around. She was just a wild person, and then she acted act as a fool. So he picked up the phone because he knew her mother. He had grown up with her mother, and he, she had a discussion with her, and suddenly it all changed. So he, she couldn't act up the way she wants to, and she, she turned into a wonderful person. I won't give anybody any names, but that, that was one of the things that where things affect you as you do down the road. 
And everything that you do today, particularly with young people, will, will reverberate over the over the time and over history. So I tried to treat kids and everybody else the way I wanted to be treated. They want to run into them later on in life. You know, none of them, none of them are mad with me about anything because I never did anything to them ne- negatively. I always did things for them positively. There's a whole number of people who, uh, like Heath Jones, as an example, in Apple Hill, who, who retired very recently as a judge. And when I met him, he was he was Dean Smith's son's backcourt mate. He did all the shooting. And I got him a scholarship to Quinnipiac, and uh, which is up in up in Connecticut. And he was all New England. And he went and become a judge, and he's just retired. And I ran into him. Actually, we, we met in Charlotte about two years ago. He's, I'm just so proud of him. And, and there are a whole lot of people that are like that. I, that We helped get college scholarships. I talked to college coaches about them. And it kind of worked. Basketball has been one of the more influential things in my life. People are strange by that because I wasn't a professional basketball player, but it didn't matter. The key thing is it was very instrumental in everything I did for a long time. I wanted to be a college basketball coach. It was one of my goals. I, I did that for, you know, I think it's three seasons. And we did well. We made the playoffs and did well with not a whole lot of talent. You know, as a young person, I was aspiring to be a player. And I played against some big, big-time guys. And I was always the, among the best in my neighborhood. Had my own little team the St. Albans Collegians, and it was one of the best teams in New York City. So a whole lot of stuff has was, been was robbed around me and the advancement, the advancement of me was basketball. That's why, that's, I went to, remember, I went to Quinnipiac College, or Quinnipiac University now, uh, on a basketball scholarship. And really never played for them. But I had a basketball scholarship, and I went there and played. And the circumstances were such, and, and Bert was with the coach named Bert Kahn, legendary coach, he gave me a scholarship, and uh, we had some wonderful people. Cliff Mosley, who played for the Lakers, Radar Rulak, who I ran into very recently, like a year a year ago, and some people like that. Keith Jones. It was, you know, it was a wonderful time. I've, I've done basketball was one of the things that were most most instrumental in everything I've done. And I guess that was one of the, one of the first, most first thing I did with me and Neil did was play basketball. He played in adult leagues later on, and you know, it's all his all his children did play. And literally, it was was a, a wonderful, noted college player. He was about six foot seven. Now. So it was, you know, these are among the the experiences I've had that that you can't you can't buy that. And if you make it, and if you treat people the way you want to be treated, it tends to work out. If you see you, you young people, you try to help them along the way because they really don't know. Everybody needs needs a guiding person to say good things about them. You know, that, that was I was at the induction of Keith Jones into Chapel Hill High School's Hall of Fame, and I remember that people were there, a big crowd actually, people for the meeting. And Keith asked me to introduce him, say something about it, and it was you know a wonderful event. So you never know what, how you affect a young person, how that'll affect their lives down the road. And he went to Quinnipiac because I told him to go there. And he's probably the best player. Um, him and uh, uh, Cliff Mosley were the two best players 
that ever, ever went to, to went to Quinnipiac. Of course, there's Bobby Vaca also, and another guy whose name is escaping me, but he was there but well before. And he was one of the leading scorers in the country in, in, in basketball history, in fact. And when he was not even Division One, they were like Division Four years before I got there. But you know, it's it's an interesting vehicle for me to live with and learn stuff and go places. And uh, we did some interesting things. All I can did say. Did you play at Rucker Park? Yes. In fact, in fact, the fun, strange thing is I is I knew Holcomb Rucker. Rucker. I mean, I was actually a person. I knew him. And uh, that was during a time when uh, Jackie Jackson was, was taking dollars off the top of, of uh, backboards. He was jumping, jumping Jack, you know, Jackie Jackson. And then uh, I, I saw a guy from uh, Boys High, Duncan Luas in there, in, in there too also. And he did it two or three times. And of course, we we played in uh, the St. Albans Collegians played all over the place. We played in Harlem. We played in the Bronx. We we we, we went into white neighborhoods and played in some of their tournaments. And St. Albans Collegians were just a fixture for a number of years, probably half a decade, maybe a decade or so. And we had a lot of players who went on and did stuff. None of them were world famous, but all of them, you know, had a chance to go to college. They did go. And very often, I, I remember I, college coaches came, talked to me. I remember one time, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers called me up and was asking about Lonnie Klotz. And he was a guy who played with us in the summertime in the summer leagues. He was about six foot eight. And a great, great, great leaper. And he did stuff that he would easily do with the basketball. He dunked, he dunked, it wouldn't take any effort for him to do that. And he wanted Lonnie Klotz's phone number because he wanted him to play for the Cleveland Cavaliers. I never get those. Bill, I don't want to say Stepien, but it may not, that, that may not be exactly right, but I think that's what it is. But he was the owner of the Cleveland of the Cleveland basketball team in the NBA at that time. So it's, you know, it, we did a lot of stuff. I remember he called me to him one day and he was on his own. So Al McGuire would call me on occasion about a play, about this and that one. And my thought is, I'm trying to get people in the college. I, I'll try to help them. And the coaches would ask me about it, whatever. And of course, Bert Kahn gave me a scholarship to play for the Quinnipiac. And I, I will forever be grateful for that for him. I left a job at the New York Telephone where I was a manager to go back. And, and I was, I guess, I was probably mid 20s to do that, to so go, go up to Quinnipiac and play. So. So yeah, definitely. I I also played played I also played semi pro for Jerry's Tireman, <laughs> and, and 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 that was an interesting experience because they had we had three black guys on the team with all these Italian guys, and uh, I played a lot of wing T. I never played with the wing team with the wing T before. That's that's what they ran, and we would go other places. I remember going up to uh, upstate New York with the Hudson Valley Crusaders, and they almost broke my leg. And they, they, were, they, were, they were a team that was less like a pro team. They beat the hell out of us up there. But it was, you know, mom, thing. she always says you had the cleanest jersey at the end of the game. 
That's because I was very good at it. That's because I had a lot of escapability. Uh, uh, no, but sports have been big for us as kids, Dad. Thank you for getting us involved in kids. You got two teachers now, myself and my my brother. How does it feel that, to have raised two teachers? Very good. They they they, they want to help other people, and that's that's key. It, 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 I guess as I get older, I realize that if you model something to young people and young boys particularly that's who they become they, they, that's the only model they have to go by and you're imprinting that on them so they'll do the same thing that you did if you treat people badly if you treat females badly that's what they'll do so you know I was in a loving household so I never saw you know a child abuse or a wife abuse so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that I never saw it I didn't think about it so I never did it. And I, and I assume that you never did it. So I, I would you know, be surprised if you did, but it's not your nature. But the, the, what I'm saying to you is the key, the, key, the key example here is how you model yourself is how young people, kids, basically model themselves. That's, that's what they learn. That's the template. And, and just for the record, Dad, I've never laid my hands on a woman, Dad. That's not my style. Neither <laughs> Neither have I. Sometimes they try you, though. I give them that. I'm looking at one now who sometimes tries me, but I don't beat her up or anything, no. Okay. So what else is on your topic list for today? We got about five minutes left in the show, and uh, America wants to hear what's on your mind. Well, as I said, what's on my mind is this... uh, C19 epidemic, uh, it's, 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 it's upended society completely. It, and it's upended it probably for the next 50 years. A lot of things that we did before that will be finished, will, will never be done, done again. You know, I was reading something about the uh, vacancies in New York City, and they don't quite, people aren't coming back to work, so they don't quite sure know what to do with it. They're, should they raise the rents or lower the rents or whatever? And the bond people are involved with that. And a lot of the maldistribution of wealth will change back to where it should be. We have more maldistribution of wealth than did they did before the French Revolution. And you know what happened to those guys there? Mary Internet had her head chopped off. It was the invention of the guillotine point now when three people own as much as the bottom half of the country, that can't stand and it can't stand forever. That's going to be taken away. It's just a matter of when. The thing that made Bernie Sanders so popular is people began to listen to what he ate. And everything he said, you know, four years ago is now very mainstream. And Obama make, putting in that healthcare system and some other things you'll see. This four years if it's democratic, we'll change everything. You won't recognize the country. It'll be a fairer country. We'll be able to not have people stake, scapegoat. You know, Republicans only win if they cheat. They can't win otherwise. You know, they have to have these schemes of voter suppression and ID laws. And that's because they, if, they, if everybody votes, they never win. 
And given that, you know, it's just a matter of time now. The Democrats will probably get in and, and they'll take both houses, House and Senate, and laws will suddenly be changed for the better. Things that the Republicans have been blocking for a decade or two will suddenly be go out the window. And so it'll be, it'll be, we're coming into a time of the politics will change so dramatically, it'll make your head spin. That's my prediction. And it, it'll be, be better, it'll be a better life for all of us. Bernie Sanders and Ortez, the lady Ortez, and that gang of, of women that are with her, that's a precursor to where it's, it's going to be elected. They'll be the, actually the models of what you'll see down the road, no matter what happens. And all I can say to you is, to anybody out here thinking of running for election, uh, elected office, run. We need you out there running for stuff. Your idea is as good as anybody else's. And guess what? You don't have to know a whole lot because you'll learn a whole lot when you do it. And that's for everybody. I said, go ahead and run for something. I remember Lyndon Johnson said something about his, about John F. Kennedy's cabinet when he first saw him, the best and the brightest, supposedly. He said, but I wish one of them had run for door catcher. And he's exactly right. When you put yourself out in front of voters and stuff, that changes you because you're asking people for the one thing that, that you can't buy. They'll vote. And they only have one. You want them to give it to you. And they have to, they, they have to be able to believe in you to do that. That's what the Republicans have never grasped. They, they just want to do schemes with their buddies. And people, and, and one interesting thing I was telling, telling Sharon the other day is when we go to the National RV Convention every year, at least one guy, he's always, always a white guy, comes up to me and starts talking to me about the political situation. And these are people I don't even know. But one comes up to me for the last five years, has come up to me and had a long discussion with me about Republican politics. And I just find it fascinating because I don't, I don't know who these people are, but they always come to me and have a long discussion with these crazy, crazy Republican idea, and I shoot every one of them now. I shoot every one of them down because they act like fools. Because nobody ever told them how, how, the, how the world really, really works and what they're doing to everybody else. And I was, telling, I, was, I was telling Sharon that the other day, but one of them comes up to me every year at the National Convention of RV Park Owners and starts, starts talking this awfully crazy talk that you hear on uh, Rush, Rush Limbaugh and that, that bunch. And that's just crazy talk. All right. So as we close out, uh, listen, you've enlightened us today. Thank you for taking us back in time and history. Thank you for talking about the present. We got to hear your, another one of your sons, uh, Bobby. Uh, it was a great show. So closing out, what's your words of wisdom for America? Vote. Vote for who you please, but only vote for people that are going to help you. They're not going to help you. They're trying to take your money away, whatever. Don't vote for them. It's the one thing you got that, that they can't take away. Vote. So, Awesome. I am Derek Drakeford. You've been on the line with the former mayor, Dr. Robert Drakeford. This is from Bricktown. We'll see you next week. Same time. Adios, muchachos. I hate that.